Exodus chapter 20. We're going to read verses 4 through 6. Exodus 24 through 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. May the Lord add his richest blessings to the reading of his word this morning. You may be seated. There are actually very few Christians today who could even name the Ten Commandments. And yet they were obviously important because it was these Ten Commandments that guided Israel throughout not just their trip from just outside of Egypt on Mount Sinai when God gave the commandments, the Ten Commandments specifically, but they were to guide them as they went through the desert for 40 years, they wandered, and then they ended up in the Promised Land. Of course, it wasn't the same people because the ones who had come out of Egypt, what happened to them? They all passed away. Why? Because they failed to obey the commands. God was very clear. There is a blessing for those who keep the commands and a curse for those who don't. Well, we've gone through the first command, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And there really is where the first four of the commands lie, is in that one command. How much do we love God? Do we love him with all of our heart? Do we love him with half of our heart? Do we love him with just the Sunday part of our heart? How much do we love God? For the believer, loving God is, or loving God first is not an option. Now, there are things that can get in our way, and I believe that's why God wrote the commands in the order in which he did, because now we come to no graven image. Now, we look at some of the pictures that we have had on the screen before us and we have seen places like India where they have some 8 million different named gods in India alone. For a population of 1.4 billion people, it is now the most populous nation on the face of the earth. And out of all of those gods, every one of them are dead or they do not exist in anything other than the figment of a person's imagination, or they have been some grotesque figure that has been carved out of wood or stone or whatever it may be to set on an altar or to be able to set somewhere in a prominent place so that people can bow down to that object and worship them. So the second command, when I read this, do not have any graven image or any carved image there are many questions that come to mind. What about pictures? You can't go to any Christian bookstore without seeing some kind of pictures of whether it's Jesus knocking on a door or whether it's pictures of angels or little carvings or statues or uh, some of you may even have a, a cross or something maybe that you have on your Bible or that you wear around your neck. Is there something in the scriptures that prohibits these Items that many of us probably have in our home, maybe even without even thinking about it. Do pictures fall into the same category as an image? 
An image, of course, we're speaking here of something that is, that is carved, something that would be done by a woodworker or a metal worker. Are these pictures prohibited by God? What if the pictures are meant to be representations of the Lord Jesus Christ? For example, we have over here on this wall, we have a, a picture of the three crosses, that, and it's not realistic because that's not really what Golgotha would have looked like, but is there a violation or a command that we are breaking here, namely the second command, to have that picture? How many of you see have seen the poem, Footprints in the Sand? Okay. Uh, what about the one where uh, the first moment that you get into heaven and there's a picture of a man standing there, the form of a man, and he's embracing a loved one as that loved one crosses through into eternity. We've got one. There's one I've got hanging on my wall that was a reminder of my brother when he passed away. Are we violating some kind of a command, namely the second command, to be able to have those pictures? Well, I'm glad you asked, and I'm glad that's why you're here today. <laughs> God designed man in his own image, didn't he? We find this in Genesis chapter 1 through 3. And we find the account of creation. Right from the beginning, God desired to commune and to fellowship with his creation. Out of the entire created world, if you will, we are the only ones that, have, that were created for the purpose, express purpose, of being able to fellowship back and forth with God. Not the animals, not even the angels. The angels were created for one purpose, and that was simply to give praise to God. We were created in order to be able to fellowship with him. In fact, we are told specifically, and every word matters, what did God do in the cool of the evening? He came down to the garden and he fellowshiped with Adam and Eve. However, Adam chose to deliberately walk in a way that was, an, that was a rebellious affront against the holy righteous God. After seeing all the things, and, and, and you know, we've talked about this before, but I don't believe for one moment if it would have been us that was there, we wouldn't have done any differently. We do the same thing in our lives today. We see all of the things God has given us. He gives us breath moment by moment. We're kept by his love and by his care. And then we turn our backs on him at the slightest inconvenience. Maybe when things don't go the way that we want them to. Adam and Eve were no different. They had, they had paradise at their hands and yet the evil one comes in and he says, one question, did God really say that? The question hasn't changed, Brother Doug. It's still the same question that we face in the world today by the evil one. Did God really say that? You see, for, for a while, and, and we talked about that this last week on Thanksgiving Day for the, for the dinner, and thank you again to everybody who was involved in, and who helped to be able to provide all of the food here. We had a wonderful time. But one of the questions that we talked about was, where do, where do we stand in all of this? How do we relate to God? God is holy. God is righteous. We are not. So where do we, as human beings, where do we take these commands that have been given to us, we who have been born under sin, and how does it affect us on a daily basis? After all, in, in the garden we have Satan being, or Satan coming and telling Adam and Eve, listen, 
God, did God really say this? And so we ask the same questions. Did God really say this? We, we have been fighting now for not just the inerrancy of Scripture, which means that the Bible is without error. That was the big battle back in the 70s and 80s. Some of you may remember that. Now the battle today is, are the Scriptures sufficient? In other words, did God really say that to us? Is that really the way we're supposed to live our lives? All of mankind now is born under sin. Again, we ask the question, how many, how many times do you have to sin in order to make you a sinner? Now, the easiest answer would be one. The biblical answer is none. Because you and I are born sinners. We are born with a nature that, is, that separates us from the holiness of God. And something has to be done about that. Thankfully for us, Something was done in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The taint of original sin means that God needed to show the standard which would be the only acceptable way for us to commune with him, again, as one friend does to another. Does God have the right to be able to set the standard for our, the world? Sure he does. And the commands that he gives here, even if we thought that we could try to obey all of them, James chapter 2 verse 10 says, if we have broken one of them, we have broken all of them. Now the children of Israel, let's go back to them for just a moment as we're in Exodus 20. They have just recently come out of Egypt. They have just recently in chapter 15, they have sung the song of Miriam as they have watched the bloated bodies of Pharaoh's army rising to the surface of the Red Sea. And as they are standing there looking at this, thanking God for his mercy and the fact that they are now on the other side of the Red Sea. Now the children of Israel, they continue their journey. They now find themselves at the foot of Mount Sinai. What did God say to them? Don't come near the mountain. Stay away because I am holy. You are not. There is a standard. There is a, there is a line of demarcation that has to separate you and I. So I'm going to call Moses my servant up and I'm going to tell him what he needs to tell you. All around the children of Israel as they are walking they find the heathen nations who neither loved God nor his people even some of those who were distant cousins like the Edomites do you remember how they refused to offer Israel any help as they were walking in fact they asked they said we won't touch anything we'll follow a certain path we'll get through your land and they actually sent out troops to say if you come in one step into our land we're going to kill you In their travels, the children of Israel came across many things that would take their eyes off of God. You know, we, we can talk about living a simpler life, even in a monastic lifestyle. Uh, those who lived in caves or in little tiny cells, as Martin Luther did, for example, for a number of years before he came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they could live in these tiny cells, and you would find that even in a cell separated from everybody else in the world, you are still going to find yourself sinning. The moral law that God gave, though, here on Mount Sinai was the sum of the responsibility between each person and others. But more importantly, it dealt with the relationship between God and man. Now, we could break these down in a number of different ways. The first four commands show us what our relationship is to be between us and God. 
And the last six commands are the relationship between us and one another. Under the new covenant, though, we come to the law with new eyes. No longer do we need to fear that condemnation will be brought to our souls because we fail to obey. Do you remember what the Lord Jesus Christ said? I say unto you, the law says this, but I say this. And in that one moment, every religious person in Israel fell under the condemnation of God. We find ourselves under the same condemnation. The difference is that we don't have to fear it anymore if our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. We could sum up this one section with Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now, how much condemnation? None. To those who are in Christ Jesus. See, this is why when we come to the Lord's table, as we mentioned this last Sunday, we come to the Lord's table and partake of communion with the Holy God because we do have a mediator to guide us. That one mediator, 1 Timothy chapter 2, is the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, the perfect one. We don't need anybody else. We, we saw on the screen, and, and regardless of where you stand or what your belief is, it, it's not a hatred of the Roman Catholic system or the Roman Catholic Church that we put this, the pictures that we had up there today. It is because there are many who are trapped, over one billion Roman Catholics in the world today who are trusting in graven images. They are praying to them. They are bowing down to them. Many of you were saved out of that system. Today, for those who are in Christ Jesus, we we do not have to worry about having a false communion with God. We can come before him thankful in our hearts that he has forgiven us. Is the Lord Jesus Christ guiding you today? If we are to have no other gods before us, what does the second commandment then mean for us who are true believers? Is it applicable? How should we expect to obey such a command to to have no graven images within our homes? Does this mean that we go home and throw away everything that might look like a graven image? Do we throw away our Christmas trees or our tinsel? If you do, just bring it over to my house. Because that's not what it means. The world is full of false religions and there are few places that are more blatant about this than in the East as we have already mentioned about India. For those of you who have had the privilege of traveling to far off countries, you will know that there are many temples that abound with golden idols of Buddha in countries like Thailand or Myanmar, Laos or Vietnam. A visit to India produces a a myriad of grotesque statues that bind the souls of men and women. You can go to the deepest jungles of Africa or places like Papua New Guinea and you will find them bowing down to worship something. We're no different here in America. We bow down and we worship a lot of things here in America. It could be money. It could be sports. There are a lot of things that we worship. There are things that we have created images out of. And in so doing, we are showing to God that we don't love him first. 
Images of Mary adorn places of worship for those trapped in Roman Catholicism. These images are merely objects of worship. They are worshiping these things instead of worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. All of these idols are no different than the golden calf that Aaron supposedly threw the gold into the fire and out fell this calf. He must have thought his younger brother was a nut to believe that such a thing could have taken place. And what is it that Aaron said to them? Behold, O Israel, your gods that have taken you out of Egypt. Did anybody really believe, Brother Diego, that that golden calf that was just created took them out of Egypt? No, of course they didn't. What they wanted was a representation of the Most High so that they could worship that. They wanted to be able to see it. This command is the largest of all of them and it requires more space or has demanded more space in that we have three verses, verses 4, 5, and 6. It's the only command that comes with a separate reminder of a curse for disobedience and a blessing for obedience. So let's set the stage this morning. If we want to live a life of obedience, then we must think about how this command applies to us. Now, there are a few ways to be able to view this particular section. How many of you were former Roman Catholic? Or your families were, extended families, all right? Do you know that this command is completely absent from the Roman Catholic vocabulary or phraseology or whatever you want to call it? You will not find the second command in any Roman Catholic church. They actually take the 10th commandment and split it up into two so that number two or the second command will be able to be removed so that they can worship their images. All of Rome's buildings are decorated by statues and this produces everything from a statue of the Virgin Mary to the baby Jesus to Jesus on the cross to the apostles and many of the saints. And each one of these items are there, are representative. And, and you can ask somebody who was in that and God has saved them out of that. You can ask them, do you worship that? Do you pray to that statue? They will all tell you the same thing. Yes, we prayed to the statue. We prayed to that object. We wanted Mary and praying to that object or praying to that apostle or praying to that saint. We want them to be able to hear and we want them to be able to answer our prayers. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ is very clear, simply pray to me and I will grant that in the Father's will. Secondly, we have the Orthodox viewpoint. This would be like Eastern or Russian or Greek Orthodox. They believe that any kind of carving is unbiblical, so instead they use pictures. They do the exact same thing. They pray to the pictures. They believe a statue will produce worship of the carving, which equates then to idolatry. So they won't pray to a 3D object, but they'll actually go up and they'll touch the picture. They'll kiss the tips of their fingers and they will touch the picture and they will pray to that picture. Judaism. Generally speaking, among the religious Jews, images are forbidden if in, again, in a 3D form. However, 
Two-dimensional images such as pictures are considered acceptable in modern-day Judaism provided that they are not worshipped. In the Reformed churches in the 15th and 16th centuries, those churches that predominantly came out of the Reformation, they condemned anybody in the church or any believers for any kind of imagery that portrayed God or the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the Reformed churches, and many of them are this way today, you will find that many of them will not have any kind of image, no kind of picture, no kind of carving whatsoever. And then, of course, we have the liberal view. When those who claim to know Christ but live like the world come together, you will often find things like Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt. Or Jesus is my buddy. Jesus is cool. Or you will have the things like Nike is just do it and so you'll have a swoop and you will have just do Jesus. And you know what we've actually done is we have taken and we have created an image. We think we have to have that in order to be able to worship Jesus. Now, some of you are going to date yourself with this next question, but how many of you remember WWJD? Okay, some of you are already smiling, you know. WWJD, for those of you who do not know, was found on everything. It was on bumper stickers, it was on mugs, it was on bracelets, it was on headbands, it was on shirts, it was on everything. And it stood for, what would Jesus do? And the object of having this in front of you was supposedly to remind you that you only do and only live in the way that Jesus would want you to live. Now, is there anything wrong with that? Well, absolutely not. But the question I have then is, well, what's wrong with just reading the Bible? Because the Bible will remind you what it is that we are supposed to do and what Jesus actually did. First Peter tells us that we follow him and we walk in his footsteps. So let's go on to talk about a graven image. And we're going to go through these quickly this morning. Number one, the definition again refers to something that is carved. The Israelites were not to make any graven or carved image. Now we know that there are many carvings in the world. They've been around for a long time. In fact, in the early part of Genesis, do you remember what happened when Jacob fled from the face of Laban, his uncle? You know, Laban, the supplanter, the trickster. He's tricked Laban out of two daughters now and out of all of his cattle and his sheep and he's got this great big herd and he's walking out of the land. They're probably running. And Laban comes after him. And you know what is sad with that whole story is that Laban wasn't, did not really care about the children and he didn't really care about his grandchildren. He was only concerned about one thing and that was the idols that were hidden in Rachel's luggage. You see, because in those times, in that particular era, there was very little worship of the one true God and the images were there for the purposes of being able to have a profitable harvest or to be able to have more children or to be able to whatever it was. And so they would bow down and they would pray and they would even offer sacrifices to these little figurines. Israel wasn't any different later on. 
whether it was the golden serpent or the golden calf or whether it was the brass serpent. Do you remember what happened with the brass serpent? The one that was put on the pole in Numbers chapter 14. Later on, Moses, of course, creates this at the command of God, but later on we find that Israel is actually taking this serpent. They have raised it up on a pole and they are coming to worship the snake on the pole, the same snakes that, was, that were killing them in the desert. In fact, the serpent, the bronze serpent, had to finally be destroyed by righteous King Hezekiah. So that defines what an image actually is. So is there a prohibition against them according to scripture or any kind of carvings? Listen to these two verses, Deuteronomy chapter 27 verse 15. Cursed is the one who makes a graven image or an abomination unto the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsman and puts it in a secret place. Psalm 97 verse 7. Confounded are all that serve graven images that boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all you gods. And the word confounded here means to be ashamed. So what is the Bible actually speaking of? He says here in, uh, in Exodus chapter 20, again, verse 4, not to make any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. So there are three things here. Number one, the things in heaven. This command certainly cannot refer to the crafting of images because what did we find in the temple or in the tabernacle? We actually find the Ark of the Covenant that was created or created by the hands of man, but it was under the direction of God to make these images that were to be placed in the temple or in the tabernacle and later they were placed in the temple. But were the objects to be worshipped? No. Secondly, things in earth. This could refer to animals, to humans, to flying creatures. Again, this is not what the second command prohibits because Solomon even created bulls for the altar to rest upon and God did not condemn Solomon for any violation. In fact, he accepted the beautiful building, the temple, when it was built. And the carvings that were crafted in order to honor and glorify God. Now we're going to skip one here. We're going to go down to actually letter E because I want to bring this up at this point. And we go from one extreme to the other. How many of you have ever been to Europe? Okay. What do you see on the buildings? On church buildings? Or on stately old buildings? What are some of the things you see? Gargoyles. Okay. Or demons or figures of created beings that were created by God. And some of them are just really, really grotesque. And what happened in the Middle Ages was that mythical creatures were placed on the buildings so as not to violate the letter of the law. Today, many of the places in, of worship in Europe still have these creatures on them. And yet, the people blatantly disobey the part that God sought to point out to the Hebrews, and it was this. If the carvings are for the purpose of worship, then we break God's law. In other words, in modern English, this is what God is saying. If we have to have something to catch our attention or to bring our attention to God in order to worship him, we have completely missed the God of the Bible. 
That's really what it's about. You see, you can go into all of these flashy temples or the synagogues or wherever it is that you want to go to worship and you can see all of these things and all of the stuff that's surrounding the, you on the platform or on the pulpit. In fact, there are a lot of churches that, that if you're not consecrated or if you're not an ordained priest or a cardinal, you can't even come up beyond a certain point in the church. And those things were done for one purpose and that was to be able to show the difference between the people and the clergy and instead of lifting up God, the churches were lifting up the clergy. Verbal images, going back to, to letter C, the Bible vividly describes items, people, and even God, for example, in Revelation chapter 1. So it can't refer to a verbal image. Can we say that we would want to think about what it must be like for the, if we were to actually see the Savior or if he were to walk into our services, what would he would actually look like? I know I've wondered that. Of course, he's not a European, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, long-haired hippie. <laughs> Isaiah 53, though, says that he would not have stood out from anybody else. You wouldn't have recognized him as being somebody different. His very life allowed those who were blind and spiritually dead to see him for who he really was. You see, again, the command here in Exodus chapter 20, this is not about the actual image. This is not about some kind of a carving. This is about, do you see Jesus? He reminds them that they were not to bow down to them. They were not to serve them. And from the context of knowing who God is speaking to and from the knowledge that he is dealing in the spirit of worship, we know it's not about some kind of ascetic lifestyle or living like a monk, keeping all of these items from our home that look like anything that might be found in heaven or in earth. How many of you remember when the Taliban took over the first time in Afghanistan before we went in do you remember what happened with some of the great architecture, some of the great archaeological finds that took place out in the desert? They destroyed them. And you know why? Because their religion says that those items were designed for the purposes of worship. And the Taliban were afraid that people were worshiping these idols, which they were, instead of worshiping Allah. We move on to letter F, the bondage of false idols. The world today wants images to be able to worship. We want a God that we can see. I'm talking about the world in general, not the true church. And it's been that way since Cain rejected what God demanded with something to please himself and thought that God would simply accept the image. God says you are to bring, we know, from seeing the rest of scripture, we know that the only thing that was offered or could be offered was blood. A sacrifice that would be able to shed its blood. And Cain decided he was going to give fruit. He was going to give the best of what he had. God, see what I've offered to you? You have to accept this. God says, no, I don't. If it wasn't for God's grace, there wouldn't have even been any fruit. And we, of course, know the rest of the story. We know that instead of, instead of submitting to the will of God, 
Cain lifted up his fruit to the point where he was even willing to destroy the life of his brother. How sad. You know, there are stories down through history, if you go back to whether it's in the Crusades, back around the turn of the first millennium, around 1000 AD, and you will find even coming across to the conquistadors and others who came here in America, do you remember what they did? They came here to the Americas and they came at the point of a sword and they said, convert or we will kill you. There is a difference between that kind of so-called religion and biblical Christianity because biblical Christianity only comes when the Holy Spirit comes and convicts the heart of sin. We come to inspired worship. The command here is not to use images for worship nor to inspire worship of the Almighty. Look around you in a congregation and and determine if there's something here that we have to have. Uh, You know, there are a lot of churches and they have to have Advent. Advent. They have to have the four different types of candles and then light the center candle. and, And they think they have to have all of this in order to be able to celebrate Christmas. We don't need all of those things. We simply come together to be able to worship the one true God. We could do it if we were a bunch of believers in a cave in North Korea. We could do it in a place like Nigeria with our brothers and sisters if their building had just been burned down by the Islamic extremists. You see too many people come to church and they think that it is the building that is the church of God. This this is not the church. We could meet outside and we would still be the church. We could meet in a cave and we would still be the church. Isaiah chapter 42 verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. You know some of the best services I've ever been in in my life have been in places where they had absolutely nothing. All they had was lifting up their voices and singing praises to the Most High God. Maybe they didn't own anything more than one set of clothes for Sunday and one set of clothes for the rest of the week. And they would come together like where we were at in the deep jungles of Africa. And they came together to be able to sing to God. They came to worship him. They came and they would sit underneath those trees and we had absolutely, we had no building. And when they finally did have a building, it was mud brick with tin roof and it would be 110 to 120 on a Sunday morning in that building. And those people worshiped God. Nothing on the wall, no soft chairs. Many of them would come in and sit down on the floor and they were happy to be there. What inspires you to worship? The issue that God had here is the matter of worship. This this is the heart of any relationship that we are to have with the Creator. What do you worship? What do I worship? He says he is a jealous God. Point number H on your notes. As with any earthly relationship, our, our spouses are jealous of us and rightly they should be. We don't share them with others. This is one of the reasons why God ordained marriage to be one man and one woman. A divided heart is not a loyal heart. 
And this is what God is saying to the children of Israel and I believe saying to us today as well. God will not share worship with anything or anyone. These gods that do not hear, that do not see, that do not speak, they don't answer prayer. They don't have ears of concern for the people. Psalm 81 verse 9, Psalm 97 verse 7 or just two verses alone are some of the many verses that show that God hates the worship of these things. So what was the curse and the blessing? God again is a jealous God. He demands worship for himself alone. We understand why he pronounced the curses. We understand that all who forsake him and all who do not receive the blessings, it is because they do not love him with their whole heart, soul, and mind and being. In the Old Testament, there was actually a generational curse under the Mosaic Law, and it would actually continue on to the third and fourth generation. We don't worry about that today because our sin, the condemnation that was on those who came before us, has been taken away. And I want to say this because I know that this is something that is encroaching on evangelicalism today, and that is generational curses. Anybody here heard that term before? Okay, there are a few of you. It is unbiblical teaching. You are not cursed because of somebody in your grandfather or grandmother or father or mother because of whatever they did. You and I have to stand at the foot of the cross alone by ourselves. And when Christ forgives us, there is no more curse for you and I. Finally, this morning, let's point to Jesus. Unlike the Hebrews, we have the privilege of seeing him who is invisible. We don't need beads to pray over. We don't need crosses on the wall. We don't need all of these things in order to be able to worship the cross that's on the wall behind me. That's not for the purposes of worship. There's absolutely nothing special about this cross right here. Our eyes cannot see the physical features of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we know that in him all glory resides. We know that one day we will see him face to face. Passages like Revelation chapter 1 point to a Savior so wonderful that it should drive our hearts away from the worship of all false gods, whatever that false god may be. We should not long to be inspired with pictures on a wall or a cross around our neck, but by the truth from Scripture. You know, all of the fads that you will find, and, and if you bought into all of the fads that, that, that came, uh, and you would have to go down to the bookstore or to Walmart or wherever to be able to buy these things, you would run out of money after a while. You know, it's interesting, we have mentioned this before even, but those who supposedly have made trips to heaven and come back and made a million dollars on it, they never went to heaven. It's false advertising. If you want to know what heaven is like, pick up the scriptures. God will tell you all you need to know. In conclusion, is there any place for art? 
Any kind of art that might be or that is not an abomination in the scriptures, I believe yes, for, but not for the purpose of worship. There's nothing wrong with verses on the wall. There's nothing wrong with the cross. There's nothing wrong with paintings. What about pictures of Jesus? I don't believe that we see an express condemnation against any type of representation of Jesus Christ. For example, we've got the manger scene over here. I don't believe that that's an abomination. But the question remains, why would we need those things in order to worship? Do you remember what Christ himself told the Apostle Thomas? Blessed are those who have not yet seen, yet believe. No movie will ever adequately portray the sinless, perfect, matchless Son of God. Anytime a human representation is crafted, designed, painted, drawn, or filmed, it will all fall short. If that representation in any way then takes your mind away from the biblical understanding of the Savior, then it is idolatry. You say, why is this important? Because I believe that there are many in churches today and their focus is not on Jesus, it's on things. Whatever that thing may be, if that is more important to you than Jesus, then you have a wrong picture of Jesus. We are not bound by the structures of the law anymore, the old Mosaic law, but we are bound by the love that we are to have for the Lord Jesus Christ, that we love him with all our heart, soul, and mind. And again, that's what we come back to in this second command. How much do you love Jesus Christ? Because if you love him with all your heart, soul, and mind, you will see him as the Bible sees him. And that is the one who already came and the one who is coming again. We can't put any picture or any face to that. We just know that one day he will. And we won't need to compare him. We won't need to Google and say, oh, I wonder if that guy who's coming in the sky is the right one or not. We're going to know. So will the world. The Bible says that every eye will see him and the nations of the earth will mourn. But for those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, it will be glory because we'll be caught up together with the Lord and we'll be forever with him. We won't have to worry about any of this stuff anymore. We won't be worried about meeting together in a building. We won't have to worry about coming and taking care of buildings like this. We'll be in the home prepared for us by the Father. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I wouldn't have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. This last week, by way of illustration... How many of you remember a cult by the name of Heaven's Gate? Okay. I watched this documentary and I really didn't know. I remember it taking place. I remember all the horrible pictures just like I remember seeing pictures of Jim Jones and the massacre at Georgetown down in Guyana, South America. And I was watching 
these people as they came to these meetings and they had video clips of of these people gathering together just like you and I and and this couple sitting up front and because they liked sound of music they took on the name Doe and T as crazy as it sounds and it finally got to the point where after about 20 years he had so convinced his followers that he was Jesus and that his partner was God the Father that 39 of them ended up committing suicide. You know, what's sad is that in the video, they actually went and talked to some of the former members and some of the former members actually, since the making of that documentary, have also committed suicide because they believe that he really was Jesus. How sad that they would destroy their lives instead of looking to the scriptures and seeing the one who is coming again. You see, he's not going to come as, a, as Brother Alice shared with us in Daniel in the Sunday school hour. He's not going to be the real one. It's not the Antichrist. There are a lot of people who are going to pretend to be Jesus Christ. But if you're a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will never be duped. For that we can give thanks. Let's pray. Father, we are going to stand and sing a couple of verses of Amazing Grace in just a few moments. And it is Amazing Grace because there are many church buildings or edifices around the world and they are filled, some of them, with thousands of people every single Sunday. Some of the mosques that are filled with thousands of every week for worship and they are worshiping a false god there are many thousands tens hundreds of thousands who will be worshiping at the at the idle places of sports stadiums today and instead of focusing on the lord jesus christ sometimes even christians can get caught up in that help us father to lay aside the things which might distract us whatever it may be in this life, knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back and we need to be looking for him. Not only are we to watch, but we are to work for his return, knowing that it will come soon. May we be prepared for whatever it is that you have in store for us, whether it's persecution like our brothers and sisters around the world already endure. We have so much here in America and yet... Seems like every Sunday we want to throw it away for the trivial baubles of the world. Father, forgive us where we have failed you, where we have sinned against you, where maybe there are things in our life that we are keeping revival from taking place. May your will be done in each and every heart and life. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I invite you to take your hymnal one more time, hymn number 330, hymn 330, I invite you to stand with me.